And we'll sing uh, stanzas one, three, and five. 476, one, three, and five. Who are you who walk in sorrow down Emmaus's barren road? Hearts distraught and hope defeated, lips beneath grief's crushing load. Nameless mourners, we will join you. We who also mourn our dead, we have stood by graves unyielding, eat and despair bitter bread. Who are you? Our hearts are opened in the breaking of the bread. Christ the victim, now the victor, living risen from the dead. Great companion on our journey, still surprise us with your grace. Make each day a new Emmaus on our your image trace. Alleluia, alleluia, is the Easter hymn we sing. Take our life, our joy, our worship, as the gift of love we bring. You have formed us all one people, called from every land and race. Make the church your servant body, sent to share your healing grace. <clears throat> Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, through the humiliation of your Son, you raised up the fallen world. Grant to your faithful people, rescued from the peril of everlasting death, perpetual gladness and eternal joys. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right, let's look at the congregation at prayer. Verse of the week, two verses. Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We'll speak these together. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. For the grace of God that brings salvation, that's important, 
to know that the grace of God is the thing that brings salvation to you. It has appeared to all men, which is to say, to everyone. How has this grace of God appeared? No. What? Yes, in Jesus. What does the grace of God... We talk a lot about the grace of God and grace and grace and grace, all the things that come by grace, but not what. Who is the grace of God? It is Jesus. What does grace look like? It looks like Jesus because it is, yes. You had to think a minute before you answered his question, or his answer. About baptism? baptism. Because... Yes, because baptism is not what I wanted and is technically incorrect, but it's good, and I was trying to figure out how I wanted to respond. Uh, and I ended up just responding with no. <laughs> so for all that time, zero creativity. Uh, so, and here's the thing, with baptism, sure, yes, uh, you encounter God's grace in baptism, and you receive God's grace in baptism, just like you would in, in any sacrament, a distribution of the grace of God in the touch of Jesus. But there's a deeper encounter there than just, where do I find grace in baptism? There is the deeper and more universal statement, which is, I encounter God's grace, or I know God's grace, or I see God's grace in Jesus. And then from Jesus... It is here and here and here and here, wherever, where, wherever Jesus has said, these are the places where I will be specifically for you to touch you, to give you my grace, and to heal you. So um, that is very important. Christ is the grace of God. So this grace of God brings salvation because Christ brings salvation and has appeared to all men. And then the question is, well, if it is Christ... And if grace appears in Christ, because it is Christ, how can we say Christ has appeared to all men? Which is to say to everyone. Because to put on the devil's advocate cap for just a minute, when is the last time you were out and about and saw Jesus? Okay, sure. You see Christ in his creation because of the fingerprint that he leaves behind. On the altar. Right. You encounter Jesus in the sacraments. Mm -hmm. So you, you, he has appeared in that way. He has appeared in his people. So you are the ones who make manifest the love of God in the world, which is something perhaps we don't think about. There's a great... Uh, this is in my head because I worked on the Didache a bunch this week, on the, on the commentary. And the idea of loving your neighbor is, in a sense, you actually being an empty vessel that used to be full of junk, but in loving God has been cleaned out and is then filled back up again with God. So you become a vessel in which God now dwells so that your eyes are not your eyes, 
Your hands are not your hands. Your feet are not your feet. Your mouth is not your mouth. Your goods are not your goods. Your words are not your words. Your heart is not your heart, but that everything is, the, is Christ's who works on behalf of your neighbor. Okay. Very good. Okay, so this grace has appeared teaching us new shoes are hard. Whose child is that? I don't know, she's not mine. <laughs> that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that by doing that, by denying these things, we should live instead soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's the hard one. Sober. Yeah, the soberly, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so teaching us, firstly, which is to say Christ shows you right from wrong. This is a beautiful reverse of what happens in the garden, because in the garden they think that, that they're really going to know good and evil, and what ends up happening is what they knew all along was good, and they tried to take wisdom on their own terms instead of receiving wisdom from God on his terms. So they end up actually learning evil and not good. So you are someone who knows more about evil than you do about good until Christ comes and opens your eyes and all of a sudden gives you the wisdom that you lacked and now you know the difference between good and evil. He teaches you and again kind of to use the language of the Didache and the Apostles and the Apostolic Fathers and the early church is to say that there are these two ways and you were on the way of death, but you have been plucked up and now put on the way of life and now realize that there is a difference between the two and that now that you're on this way of life, you know what is good and you now must choose what is good and live by what is good. Which means denying all ungodliness and worldly lusts. There's an old um, early church word, in, it's, a, it's a, a Greek, Eastern word for this um, worldly lusts. Now, what the Latin word is from the Western Church, which that's our tradition is the Western Church, is concupiscence, which you have heard me say before. Concupiscence, which just means that inner burning, flaming desire to sin. The fact that you don't want to sin, but deep down you actually kind of do. That's your concupiscence. But the Greek word is passion. I am aflamed with passion. So you deny the worldly lusts. Whatever thing lights your fire, get rid of it. Because if it isn't Jesus, it isn't good. Essentially, your passions. So give up that and live soberly, righteousness and godly in the present age. Put off the old, live in the new, and you're able to do this by the grace of God that gives you the strength to do it. Which is all the more reason to, after having been brought into the church through baptism, to keep on coming to be strengthened with the sacrament that is the Eucharist because if you're not actually being strengthened in your endeavor to live in the new, you will always go back to the old. Question. Yes. Um, there about in the second phrase it says, has appeared to all men. Yes. So it's not all believers. No. But to all. Yeah, how, yeah and to, to emphasize that, trying to keep in mind the point I was making about you being now how the love of God is manifested or the grace of God is met, Christ in you, 
how many people do you, just as one individual, encounter that are not Christians in your daily interactions? And then multiply that by however many individuals there are, and Christ is being made manifest to them presently, not only in the proclamation of the gospel that happens, but also in the lives of his saints here in the present on earth. Well, where I'm going with this is then so unbelievers don't have the excuse that God, that Jesus didn't appear to them? No. Uh, hold on to that because there's more to say about that and we don't have time before <laughs> oh. Sunday school. Oh, yeah. okay. So hold on to that because I won't remember, so I'm going to count on you two. Okay. okay, let's speak to these verses again. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What is the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. What does this mean? The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us His Holy Spirit, so that by His grace, we believe his holy word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. We pray for the kingdom to come to us, which is important because um, I've told you that there is a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the heavens. And usually when you are reading the Bible, what, you are, what translation you are reading is actually referring to the kingdom of the heavens, which is Jesus. God's kingdom is Jesus, specifically the crucified and risen Jesus. Where does God's kingdom come? It comes upon the cross. Remember what Dismas, the thief, says to Christ, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because Jesus is entering into his kingdom on the cross. That's what, one thing that makes Palm Sunday such a big deal. He doesn't enter into his kingdom by riding in like a king. He enters into his kingdom by, in humility, dying. So that's the kingdom. So we pray that that would be delivered to us, which is a bigger deal than, you know, Oh, here's the crown, here's the key to the city, here's your, your apartment in the, in the inner circle, whatever, that kind of kingdom in earthly terms. So the kingdom then comes when you receive the Holy Spirit, who is whose spirit? Jesus' spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. And then by his grace, through the means of Jesus, given by the Spirit, believe his holy word, which is not just the things that are spoken, but the person of Jesus, and then lead godly lives, which is to say, what is the difference between faith and works? Not the difference between works righteousness and faith righteousness, the difference just between faith and works. Nothing. Nothing. Faith and works are 
two sides of the same coin. They are the same. You can't have faith without works. You can't have works without faith. Which is why the pagan who does lots of charitable deeds does no good works. Because good works that are not born from and motivated by the love of God are not good works, no matter how good they appear to man because they aren't motivated by the love of God. So you believe his holy word, and, and when you believe, you also then lead godly lives. I recognize what is good, what is evil. I want to be on the way of life. I live that way here in time and then there in eternity because I live with Christ in righteousness, innocence, and blessedness forever, according to the explanation on the creed. Okay, to Sunday school. There is uh, a famous atheist who you probably have heard of. He is, he has died, he's since died, may the Lord have mercy. His name is Christopher Hitchens, who apparently was a really nice fellow outside of debates. If you ever only ever watched him debating, you would think he was a real four-letter word. A real piece of something. Dirt. Yeah, dirt. Good, thank you. You'd be pretty good. <laughs> so, so, but everybody who really knew him said he actually was a really nice guy who kind of put on a face for the debates, but militantly atheist, extremely, extremely intelligent. And he had this kind of trump card that he would give to Christians that he would debate and he would say, oh, uh, <laughs> unintentional. Yeah. He, he would say, tell me one good, moral, ethical thing that a Christian can do and nobody else can do. Sure, but that's, I mean, what he, wants to, what he wants to hear is something that is visible, that I can see you do, that, that, is, that you do, that the pagan down the road can't. And it's more difficult to answer than you would think. And there are, that's a big thing we're not going to go into because there are a lot of philosophical presuppositions like what is morality? How can you define a morally good act uh, between a Christian and an atheist and have them define that equally to be able to address the question equally? Uh, just taking the question as simply as is possible, uh, I actually just heard there's a, there's a, a YouTube channel that I really like. The guy is, he's some kind of reformed, and I don't know what, because he, he puts out videos that talk about why I think Calvinism is a heresy. And I would have thought he was a Calvinist, except for he's, he's very vehemently not. So he's some kind of reformed. I think maybe some kind of very conservative Baptist. It's, his name is Mike Winger. 
And uh, yes. Oh, he's Calvary Chapel. Okay, so you know Mike Winger. Okay, Mike Winger has a lot of good stuff, actually, and, uh, and he's kind of in the apologetics field. So as long as you don't listen to him talk about the sacraments uh, or, you know, some other things, he's, he's good. You want to talk about apologetics, he's excellent. So he had an answer to that that I thought was just phenomenal because he said one morally good thing that the Christian can do that the atheist can't do is love God. The atheist can't love God. He can do everything else the Christian can do except for that one thing. He can't love God. And I started thinking about that. And I, that's, that's kind of where I started to realize if you don't love God, nothing you do is good. And that's the truth. And therefore, it doesn't matter whether or not I am doing the same thing as the atheist. We both go out and, I don't know, help out at the homeless shelter or, or do this or do that. What's the difference between the atheist and the Christian? It's what's in the heart. Why does the Christian do it? Because he loves God. Why does the atheist do it? I don't know, because he wants to make a difference. But really, there are only two options. Either you love God or you love yourself. That's it. Those are the only things. There's nothing in between. There's nothing else. You love God or you love yourself. And if you don't love God, then you love yourself. And everything that you do, no matter how deeply you think that it is motivated by your desire to help another person and be altruistic, it isn't. Because at its deepest core, it's motivated by your love for yourself. And therefore, it is not good. Two people can both do exactly the same work at exactly the same time, at exactly the place, and only one of them could be doing a good work. That's the point. Unless morality is rooted in God and in the love of God, it is not morally good. No matter how Earth and her authorities might look at it and say, that's a good thing. Now, I don't remember. I've already forgotten. Um, the, uh, um, the excuse that you never heard. Oh, yes. You're pleading ignorance. Yeah. Pleading ignorance when Jesus comes and somebody says, Who are you? I don't know. What? You mean I had to believe in you? You're somebody I was... Oh, I didn't know. You know, uh, <laughs> so this kind of gets back to what we had been talking about before this gospel or this resurrection harmony. And, and that is before the, the harrowing, before the descent into hell, there is such a thing as second chances, which is... Which is universalism understood correctly. There is such a thing as Christian universalism, but what it is not is everybody, no matter what, goes to heaven. I mean, I remember... No, that's not a good story to tell. Never mind. Scratch that from the record. Uh, disregard it. Anyway, the idea that, well, all paths lead to God, or no matter what I do, I'm going to find some kind of heaven, or uh, blah, blah, blah. Wrong. All paths don't lead to God. In fact, only one path leads to God, and all the others lead away from God actively. But when Christ descends, remember, salvation is made manifest in God's chosen people. And it is made manifest in Jesus. Even his own people don't really understand that. So when Jesus comes, all of a sudden, this is the salvation 
right here. This is how it is manifest, and it comes from the Jewish people for all people. It comes from the tribe of Judah for Israel, through Israel, by Israel, for the whole world. So God does not set Israel apart from the world in the Old Testament so that, you know, willy-nilly, which is sometimes, if you read the Bible, you can think that God just says, well, eeny, meeny, you, oh, hey, you're going to be my chosen people. All the rest of y'all, to hell with you. But this people here, now they're good. Well, what's the difference between this people and all of these people? Well, I just randomly picked this one, and now I love them. Like, and that's a lot of atheists will read the Bible and go, well, why Israel? Why did they go to war with the Canaanites? Yeah, well, look, they went to war with the Canaanites because the Canaanites didn't like God's people and rejected God. Not all the Canaanites did. A lot of the Canaanites became adopted into the, into the um, clan of Israel. Rahab was not an Israelite, but she was brought in and was part of the lineage of the Messiah. Okay? So it's, it's not that God rejects the other people. God loves all people. And he tells Abraham, that's the promise to Abraham, not your seed shall be blessed, but all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in your seed. The Christ that comes is for the whole world, but he will come, he's got to come from somewhere. So this is where he is going to come. And as a sign that the Messiah comes through this people, then I will manifest my great works in this people. Nobody will stand against this people because nobody can stand against my Christ who is coming from these people. It's certainly not because Israel was such a great nation because you know what? Israel kind of sucked. They weren't great. God calls them whores. That's not a nice thing to call a nation. They weren't that great. There were pagans that were better people than a lot of the Israelites. Okay? So salvation is then manifested in Christ. And Christ dies and Christ descends and, man and preaches the gospel to the saints and the saints that say, oh, this is what I've been looking for my whole life and I believe that are then saved. After there is no more of that second chance or, or you know, patristic Christian universalism. There isn't that anymore, which is, I mean, that's in Scripture, that not all are saved. But by whose choice are those who are not saved not saved? Theirs, exactly. I mean, this is the line I always come back to is what C.S. Lewis says. There are only two kinds of people when Christ returns on the last day, the day of resurrection, and those are the people that say to Jesus, thy will be done, or the people to whom Jesus says, thy will be done. You can say, I want to be with Jesus or I don't want to be with Jesus. That is up to you. And to say you don't does grieve God but part of God being a loving God means he's not going to force himself upon anyone because love doesn't force itself. It has to be given freely. It has to be received freely. But he gives every opportunity. He creates the office of the ministry, which proclaims his word, proclaims himself into the world through the preaching of the gospel. 
Remember that I said the ascension is actually really important because the ascension and then Pentecost mean that the office of the ministry becomes the loudspeaker and megaphone for Jesus. So that it isn't just Jesus in Galilee and then Jesus in Capernaum and then Jesus in Tiberias and then Jesus in blah, blah, blah. It's Jesus everywhere all at once through his office. And he manifests himself in the lives of his saints. You are a holy priesthood, which doesn't mean that you are all mini-pastors. It means that you are all temples wherein the Lord dwells, who offer right sacrifices of thanks and praise and good living. And there's, there's more to it than that. We just don't have time to go into all of that. Okay, So you can say, oh, I didn't know about Jesus. But it isn't honest anymore, because salvation has been manifested. So ignorance is not a plea that is acknowledged, because I, I, may, I gave every opportunity to you, says Christ. I put myself into every crack of creation. I did all of this. I did all of this. I did all of this. There is no accidental atheist. And the funny thing about the atheist is that this is what the atheist says. I don't believe in God, and I hate him. I mean, take a minute there. I don't believe in God, and I hate him. The, I, I once went to a, ba a debate. I took my dad. It's a debate between, I think his name was Dan Brown. He was the president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation between him and between Dinesh D'Souza on whether the Christian faith mattered and was something important. <clears throat> and I remember, I don't remember, I only remember two things from that debate. The first thing, three. The first thing was the, the it was like the Campus Catholics Association that, that sponsored Dinesh D'Souza being there. And they came out very studious, very, very eloquent. I mean, they were intelligent, nice, People and then the and then the other group that sponsored it on the other side was the Free Thinkers Association, and this guy came out in his ripped up jeans and his T-shirt and his long scraggly hair and beard and it looked like he hadn't washed for a week. Hey man, I'd like to welcome all you Free Thinkers out here. All right, well have a good night. <laughs> I was like, boy, I hope that's not a preview of how the debate's going to be because that's going to be what we call shooting fish in a barrel. <laughs> And it wasn't. Uh, but then the other thing I remember is Dan Brown ripping up a Bible on the stage. Saying, this doesn't matter. And ripping it and throwing it down, which is just bad argument. I mean, if you watch a debate, that's theater. That's not debate. But then I remember Dinesh D'Souza's, one of his closing lines. This is the thing that sticks with me. He said, Dan Brown is not an atheist. He is a wounded theist. And I thought, somebody call the fire department because you just got burned. <laughs> that was so good because that is the truth of the atheist. Is that there, there really isn't such a thing as an atheist. If the atheist didn't believe in God, it wouldn't matter to him whether or not other people did, but it does. 
They just can't let it go. They can't stand the fact that there would be people that actually believed that. I, I don't believe it, but nobody else should either. Well, why not? Well, because it, it doesn't blah, 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 blah. There, there is no such thing as a real atheist, only wounded theists. And that gets to this point. There is no such thing as ignorance. You, you can also say this. Um, the Bible says that the law of God is written on the heart of man. So there, there is such a thing as natural law. Even cannibalistic, you know, primitive cannibalistic tribes that kill for sport and fun draw a line somewhere about murder. Even those, those bloodthirsty people that you would look at and say, oh my, they are sure savage and uncivilized, even they have some level of understanding that, well, I can do this to my enemy, but I would never do this to my children or my family. And anybody who did, I will seek their blood. Even they understand that, which is, frankly, a stunning indictment of cultures that support abortion. Because even the cannibals wouldn't kill their own children, but the ones who live in the privileged, cultured societies of the white collar, well, they would. Who's the one that really doesn't understand? The savage or the one who kills his child? So, oh, wounded theist. Yes, not an atheist, which means no God, a wounded theist, somebody who somehow deep down knows that there is a God or understands that there is a God and spends his whole life trying to disprove it, not to anybody else, but to himself. And he disguises the fact that he tries to disprove it to himself by coming across as trying to disprove it for everybody else. Sure. Bad, bad experiences in the church. Yeah. Bad experiences in the church are, are uh, that makes up a lot of wounded theists, sadly. And the, the thing is, you know, it takes a great deal of strength to come back to the church after being wounded by the church or being wounded by a group that calls itself the church. So, you know, so sometimes, I'm not trying to start a war here, but sometimes you have these <clears throat> uh, sort of hardcore Pentecostal groups that are really not the church, they're really just a cult. And you have people that leave something like that, or let's, let's kind of just be frank and uncharitable and honest here, something like the Jehovah's Witness which is not the church, and is really kind of a cult. So somebody who leaves something like that and then comes back to the church, that takes a lot of guts to do that. I mean, the, the wounded theist is, is a more sympathetic character than, than the militant atheist, shall I say, even though they're kind of the same. Um, yes? Uh, Thursday night, Gail had some friends her house, and the one friend uh, from Pennsylvania, uh, husband uh, is kind of a fly in the ointment, and so I was instructed to take him out 
for dinner and get him out of the house. And so we did. And, and we went. Let's right. hope he doesn't listen to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, probably won't. Anyway, and so we, uh, uh, we went to Quackers in for dinner. Sure. And in, in the conversation of different things, uh, the issue of abortion came up. And his quote was, my wife is a practicing faithful Catholic, and I'm a Catholic in name only. And the, the issue was abortion that divided them faith-wise in that as Catholic, she is totally against abortion. And he looks at the, the worldly aspect of it. I can't, uh, I can't see how you can tell other people what, what to do. And I thought that was a, an interesting point in the, how it divides even faithful people in this country or faithful people as opposed to people who aren't so faithful, maybe. I'm, I'm, yeah. But anyway, I can't. Back to the point, what you no, made. God there, does not live in that person. Yeah. Or he doesn't yeah. understand that, mm -hmm. you know, God yeah. is there, but he doesn't. Yeah. yeah, how could we possibly tell somebody what to do, like stop signs and speed limits and on-ramps and off-ramps, right? How could we possibly do that? Okay. My points. Yes, I, I, I understand your point. I don't want to talk about abortion today because there's too much to say. I will say this. Um, anybody who thinks a woman actually wants to kill her child thinks that women are pretty stupid. So... Um, there's a, lot, there's a lot of stuff there. Any, anybody that thinks that a woman all by herself says, you know what I want to do today? Let's go kill a baby. I think that'll be fun. Thinks women are pretty dumb and weak. And doesn't acknowledge that something like that is beyond humanity's capacity for evil. We're capable of a lot of evil, but there are some lines even our evil doesn't cross. We need a push to get beyond that line. So if you think that abortion is anything other than some kind of demonically induced blight on creation, and it's not new, by the way. It's always been there. So if you think that it's anything other than some kind of demonic blight, then you're wrong. And I'm not going to apologize for telling you that you're wrong, because you are. Prove to me that it isn't demonic, and I'll believe you. The burden of proof rests on you, and it'll be impossible for you to prove otherwise, because every aspect of it is absolutely 100% demonic in nature. Child sacrifice has only ever been tied to the worship of demons, and to the work of demons. So, there's a lot there. Now, to the harmony of the resurrection, what time do we have here? Not just about 10 o'clock. 9.56. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Pastor. I shouldn't... No, no, no. You're f I love Bible class. <laughs> I just wish it were 30 minutes longer. I could... I, 30 minutes. I could do something with that. Okay. <coughs> there's, there's a few things that happen when they come to the tomb. 
early in the morning. There's one trip with all the women. They come very early. They come to the tomb. They say, who's going to roll away that stone? And then the thundering of the stone being rolled away and the angel of heaven appearing and doing it, shaking the ground with the power and might of his act, causes the soldiers to, to use the Greek, to earthquake in their hearts and to pass out from fear, to sleep as though they were dead. And, which is beautiful, Jesus is not dead in the tomb, but the soldiers who were supposed to guard the dead body are now laying as dead outside of the tomb, which is where Jesus now is, outside of the tomb. Isn't that neat? The Gospels are just beautiful. Uh, so, then they see there are multiple angels, but only one of them speaks, and they leave. And then, for a little while, they don't tell anybody, they don't go right away, they kind of discuss among themselves because they're afraid, not only because of what they saw, but they're afraid that nobody will believe them because, let's be honest, who would? Who would believe the women who said that they saw an angel roll away the big giant stone and that Jesus was not inside? The seal was broken when the angel moved the stone, meaning Jesus somehow rose from the dead and escaped from the tomb without ever moving the stone which when you start reading later on and he phases through the walls and the doors, it's like, oh, that's, well, no big deal now. But if you don't know that Jesus does that, because you think that Jesus is some guy, uh, and you know that just some old Joe Sixpack can't phase through the stone of a tomb door, then that's a frightening thing, and nobody's going to believe it when they say it. So this is one of the beautiful things about the resurrection is if <laughs> it, there, are, there is so much about the resurrection that is not worth believing. If you just heard it as a story, it, it wouldn't be anything worth believing. But it's the weird things about it that make it so worth believing. Because here's the thing, if Jesus wanted people to believe that he had risen from the dead, what would he have done? Who would he have gone to first? Sure, all the great and powerful people. You'd go to the top and let it work its way down. But Jesus doesn't. He starts at the bottom. He, goes to, he appears first to the women whose testimonies don't count for jack squat in court. Can't do anything. A woman said it. Doesn't matter. They're nothing. And he goes to them first. And they are the ones that then go and have to bear the witness. So people have to listen to the meek and to the humble to believe in Jesus. So the women go, then, the, then they leave. Then a couple of them decide, you know what, we should probably tell the disciples. So they go and tell the disciples. And Peter and John, and maybe one or two more, go with them back to the tomb. That's Mark's gospel, and then you get Matthew, and then here is John. That's kind of where we left off. They go to the tomb, and then uh, the, that's when uh, Mary encounters Jesus, and he, she thinks that he's the gardener, and she says, well, where have they taken Jesus? Because, of course, the body wasn't in there, so she thinks that they scraped the seal off, rolled the stone, took Jesus out, rolled the stone back, resealed it, 
And of course, the only people who would go to that kind of trouble would be his enemies. Where have, you where have they taken him? And then you have the account, and this is only in Matthew, when the guards finally wake up and look around and go, whoops, <laughs> and then run back and they tell the chief priests and Pharisees, well, uh, an angel came and rolled the stone away and then we passed out and then we woke up and he wasn't in there and I don't really know. And the chief priests and Pharisees say, here, take some money. And if anybody asks you, say his disciples sneaked up and hit you on the back of the head and that, then they stole him and that's what happened. And they said, okay, that's what happened. So the Pharisees and the scribes know. But they are... These are Roman guards. So then we come to the road to Emmaus. How does this all fit in? It's all on the same day. All of this stuff happens early in the morning and then later on in the afternoon, you've got Jesus appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it's not two of the 12. Who does he appear to on the road to Emmaus? Do you remember? And I'll, this is sort of hard. It's kind of a trick because only one of them is actually given a name in Luke 24. Not Peter and John. Peter and John are the ones that race to the tomb when Mary Magdalene tells them that Jesus is risen. And then they kind of go and hide with the rest of the apostles and go, He wasn't there! The woman said, and then they hide there for fear of the Jews because they think that the Jews stole Jesus and then are going to pin it on them so that they can go kill them too. Cleopas. Yes, Cleopas or Clopas. Uh, that's, that's the name of the disciple. Now I told you, we briefly mentioned this last time, there's a lot of familial <laughs> relations. If you, do you remember who is Cleopas? He is something to Jesus. Somebody said something. Oh, somebody said something? Say louder, I can't. Shannon? Uncle! Yes! It's Jesus' uncle. And then the other disciple with Cleopas is... This is... This is yeah, it's his son, it's Cleopas' son, whose name is Simon. Because then at the end they say, and Jesus appeared to Simon, to Cleopas, and to Simon, the two by the road. So now this is um, a fragment of, a, of, a, of an apostolic father. He's not an apostle. He's a disciple of John and a friend of Polycarp, who was, an, he was a young disciple of John. Um, Papias. Papias has some uh, explanations about some of these relationships here, which are beautiful. And this is pretty standard now for how we would look at explaining this. Mary, the mother of the Lord. Mary, the wife of Cleopas, who is also sometimes called Alpheus, who was the mother of James, the bishop and apostle, and of Simon, who is on the road, and Thaddeus, and of one Joseph. Now, some people also say that this is actually Simon the Zealot, Mary Magdalene, 
And these four are found in the gospel. James and Judas and Joseph are the sons of an aunt of the Lord's. James also and John were sons of another aunt of the Lord's. Mary, the mother of James the less, and Joseph, the wife of Alphaeus, was the sister of Mary, the mother of the Lord, whom John names of Cleopas, either from her father or from the, name, or from the family clan or for some other reason. And then there is Salome, whose real name is Mary Salome, though there's a lot of Marys. <laughs> uh, it's, there's a lot of Marys. Um, so there's, there's all this familial interplay. Pardon me? No, this is, uh, the book is called Fragments of Papias. That's not in, this is, that, what I just read is from the Fragments of Papias, okay. which is written by Papias, who was a disciple of John, the, the apostle. Um, we don't have time for me to read you more from Papias today, uh, but I wanted to read you that. So there's already this knowledge that there are these people that are close to Jesus and all of this happens at the tomb and then Jesus vanishes. And then here we are, some other guys on the road to Emmaus. Now Jesus is with them. Mary doesn't recognize him at the tomb. She thinks he's the gardener. They don't recognize Jesus on the road to Emmaus until the breaking of the bread, which is so important. How is Jesus made known? in the breaking of the bread. And what is the breaking of the bread? That's kind of Christian code. When we say the breaking of the bread, we're not talking about the act wherein I took a piece of bread and broke it and gave thanks, Eucharisted the, the bread. We're talking about the, the, body of Christ. the body of Christ, the actual Eucharist, that Jesus goes and then Eucharists with his, and then all of a sudden, now we know Jesus because he Eucharisted us. Then he, dis he disappears from them. He vanishes from their sight. Can you imagine how much fun Jesus must be having? Just saying, hey guys! Ah! And just seeing everybody go, and then time to go somewhere else. I wish I could have been on that Emmaus road. Think about that. When, when Jesus opens all of the scriptures to them about himself, how desperately would you love to sit there at the feet of Jesus and have him tell you, Let's start at Genesis, and let me show you everything in all of the Old Testament scriptures that are all about me, and how it all relates to me, and how I'm going to suffer and die and rise again for your salvation. My goodness. Which is all the more reason to believe, or to listen to the apostles and treat them as authoritative, because the scriptures were opened to them in a way they aren't to you. So then Jesus goes and appears to the ten apostles and a few others. This is uh, at the end of Luke 24 and in John 20. And Thomas is not with them. That's that. Thomas is a sympathetic character. He should be. I hate the term doubting Thomas. I really, it's disparaging. Nobody says denying Peter or runaway naked Mark. It's just doubting Thomas. But all of the disciples doubted. They never believed until they actually saw Jesus. So he appears to them. He says, peace to you, and Thomas is not there. Then the 11 after that go, and they find Thomas, and they say, hey, Jesus disappeared. He really is risen. Those women were talking the truth. And Thomas says, I've got to see him. I don't care about reports. I need to see Jesus, and I actually need to hold on to him. 
And then eight days later, eight's an important number. That's why there's eight sides in the baptismal font. Eight is the new day, the number of eternity, the resurrection, new life. The eight, he, then he appears to Thomas. Hey, eight days. Hey, here I am, the resurrection and the life. And he also appears to Matthias. Matthias is up there too. And this you get from Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Matthias will become what? Yeah, but what apostle? Why, why is Matthias needed? To replace Judas, yes. So here's kind of a trick question then. How many apostles are there? Counting Judas's seat. Yes, good. That's, it's a baker's dozen. <laughs> Who's the 13th? Paul is the 13th apostle. The more you know. Paul becomes the 13th apostle, and then he is the apostle to the Gentiles, which is why he's number 13. Because there's 12 tribes of Israel, and then there's 12 apostles. Ah, and then the 13th is the one that goes out from there and is in charge of what happens to the Gentiles. Isn't the Bible great? Then, and this is my favorite, being on the historic lectionary is great 98% of the time. And the, the Easter tide season is actually the season when it's not great. Because there is the road to Emmaus and all of these other post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and none of them appear in church on Sunday morning. And of course, the reason for that is because you're supposed to be having church every single day throughout Eastertide, so the church assumes, well, you're just going to be in church every day, so we'll give you one new story every single day, and then when it comes to Sunday, we'll give you sort of a, a bigger overarching thing, but we don't have church every single day, so then you miss out on some of these. But this one is my favorite. Then, uh, after a little while later, Jesus appears to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the Sea of Galilee. And this is in John chapter 21. So my question to you is, do you remember what happens when Jesus appears to them by the sea. They yeah, they're fishing, they're fishing, yes. They hadn't caught anything. Well, the net's on the other side. Yep, and then they get a bunch. And I'm not going to talk about why the number is 153. And then they come ashore, and he does what? Cooks some. He's got a fire going, and he's already got fish on the fire, so he doesn't take any of the fish they just caught. They just caught a bunch of fish, and he says, now come here and eat some fish, because it's like a cooking show where they say, and I already have it prepared here. <laughs> and that's what Jesus does. Hey, let's eat some fish, fellas. I'm hungry. And why is it important that Jesus is hungry and wants to eat? Because he's got a body. Because he's real, because he's not a ghost. Ghosts don't eat. So he can prove to his disciples, 
and this is important too to, to note in, in reference to Thomas, Thomas wanting to put his hands into the nail marks of Jesus is not a bad thing. All the other disciples are worried maybe he's a ghost too. He did phase through the wall, remember? So he says, don't worry, I'm not a ghost. Watch me eat some fish. I'll eat it. It doesn't fall through me because I'm not a ghost. I will actually eat this. And the, here's a, a neat fact about the post-resurrection accounts. Every time Jesus eats, it's fish. Why is it important that Jesus is eating fish? Vegetarian. What? He's a vegetarian. Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not. Sam? What's that again? He said he conquered the sea, which is the underworld. And you are on the right track there. What he does is fulfills Jonah. Jonah goes into the water, and what happens to Jonah? He gets eaten by a fish and then is vomited out onto the shore. Now Jesus appears on the shore, and he's eating fish. Is turn the tables. Fish doesn't eat man anymore. Now man eats fish. <laughs> There's some, I think it was Gary Larson or something. I don't remember. But there was like a, new, a person reading a newspaper headline, and it said, now man bites dog. And that's what happens in the resurrection. Fish doesn't swallow man anymore. Death doesn't swallow man anymore. Now Jesus meets it on the shore. And where Jesus is now, after being vomited up himself, turns around and devours the thing that tried to devour him. Come eat some fish. And disciples, and they say, hey, Jesus. It's so beautiful. Okay, so then they're at the Sea of Tiberias. Then Jesus appears on a mountain later. Now remember, this, all of this stuff kind of takes place over the course of, of 40 days. 15. Mm, bear with me, we can get it done. He appears on the mountain. This takes place over the course of 50 days. What happens on the first day is the women coming to the tomb, going back, coming again. Peter and John coming to the tomb. Jesus going to the Emmaus Road and then Jesus appearing in the upper room in the evening. All of that happens on the first day. All the rest of this is sort of spread out. Then he appears on the mountain in Galilee. He appears to over 500 of his disciples and also to the 12. And this is Matthew 28. All of the disciples gather around Jesus on the mountain and then he, he in the sight of all of the disciples, looks at the 12 and says, you're the apostles, go out with my command now. And when you go out, what I want you to start doing is making disciples. And all of the disciples see what Jesus says to the 12 and go, oh, these guys are the bosses now. Jesus is going. He's, he's, he's going to be going away. He put these guys in charge. Now we know what we have to do. How can we serve you? And then the disciples, the apostles now, turn around and they begin to ordain people and send them out and go out themselves. And the, the, the ministry of the church begins. The early church begins in Matthew 28. <coughs> then Jesus appears to James. This only is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15. 
And then lastly, Jesus appears and he tells them, you should, excuse me, this isn't last. He tells them, hey, hang out for a while and just wait because I'll come and I'll send a helper and I'll tell you what to do. Then he appears to all the disciples. He leads them out to the Mount of Olives after that. And then he ascends before them. And that is the mark that stuff is now real. We are now the early church. And of course, 10 days after Jesus ascends, what is the 50th day after the resurrection? Pentecost. Pentecost, 50 days. Then there's Pentecost. The Spirit comes. They speak. Everything is made manifest. The Spirit is in the office. We really do have the Spirit of Christ to be Christ's and have Christ work through us in our office. And then, this is the last one. At the end of all of this, Jesus appears one last time to Paul in Arabia on the Damascus Road and blinds him. Paul becomes an apostle. He goes and is baptized. The scales fall from his eyes. He stays with the brethren for some time and then goes out to begin his ministry. Okay, this is the, this, that's the harmony of the resurrection. Everything that happens after the resurrection in chronological order, combining, with, combining accounts from all of the evangelists and from what Paul writes to the Corinthians. That's a lot. Do you have any quick questions about that? Okay. Thanks for your patience. We'll see you at the altar. I guess I should add...